I'm Tara Morgan. And I'm Rachel Friedman. Here at Steady State Podcast, we're really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. By sharing stories about the humanity of our sport, we're disrupting the narrative about rowing culture and celebrating real-life experience from launch to coxie at every level. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you're coming back for another episode, thanks for being here. On the last episode, we went behind the scenes of San Diego Crew Classic with Executive Director Bobby Smith, Associate Director Megan Calmo, and Head Beachmaster Lex Switzer. All three were walk-ons in college, and two of them rode their very first 2K races at Crew Classic. We talked Crew Classic history, how it's changed since it launched in 1973, what to expect on the course, and 50th anniversary celebrations and special happenings. If you missed it, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or anywhere you get podcasts. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Concept2, making world-class rowing products since 1976. Find out more at concept2.com. And Live to Row Studios, live online and in-person indoor rowing classes, training camps and coaching for everybody. Visit live2rowstudios.com. And welcome to our new sponsor, Barb, for short hairstyling needs on and off the water. www.thebarbshop.com. Boat clubs and organizations that have historically catered to binary athletes are struggling to put out a welcome mat for trans and gender non-conforming rowers. But scholastic, collegiate, and master's programs, along with U.S. rowing and world rowing, are adopting policies that are impacting how and if transgender, non-binary, and other gender non-conforming rowers can participate. In this new ongoing special series, we take an in-depth look at fairness in the sport of rowing by getting to know some of the rowers, coaches, and thought leaders hoping to make an impact on policy. Today, we're talking with Dr. Mary O'Connor, member of the 1976 Yale Women's Rowing Program that sparked big changes following the passage of Title IX. She went on to become a member of the 1980 U.S. Olympic team, an orthopedic surgeon, and a nationally recognized leader for health equity. Dr. O'Connor is a member of the Independent Council on Women's Sports, a network and advocacy group seeking to elevate and empower female athletes by protecting safety, fairness, and opportunity for girls and women. There's a lot of sides to this. And then there's the importance that, as we've seen in the past, when our NGO, our National Governing Organization, puts forth a policy, there's a membership behind that policy I don't remember being asked what my opinion was to create that policy. Do you? Was that in, a, in some sort of survey? That's a really good question. I don't know, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I know that one thing U.S. Rowing did do was, especially kind of through the pandemic, they started doing all these town halls. Yeah. And so there were some conversations there. And then I know that they tried to have a trans youth only event i think what happened was they tried to have a a women's only event 
to talk about trans inclusion, like biologically women's only event to talk about trans inclusion. I don't think that ended up happening because membership was like, what stopped the presses here? Yeah, I think they were trying to get the perspective of, um, we can call them cisgender, you know, that the people are AFAB, assigned female at birth. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that didn't seem like a very smart uh, way of gathering information. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I'm, what's the order of operations? Like, did the world rowing thing come out first and then that informed the U.S. rowing? So I don't have my notes right in front of me, but I'm pretty sure in December-ish, both World Rowing and U.S. Rowing announced some policies. And then early this year, World Rowing updated their policies. Mm-hmm. And on the tails of that, U.S. Rowing again updated their policies to be in line with World Rowing. But again, like, We're talking about a few different things here. We're talking about scholastic youth. We're talking about masters and collegiate. I think that part of what they align on is this idea of self-identifying. Yeah. And there being no documentation for that. And then just to clarify that what I'm reading here originally only applied to events not run by world rowing and not run by NCAA. Right. The U.S. rowing policy is specific to U.S. rowing sanctioned events. Right. And there's the youth level, which has slightly different rules than adult masters athletes and very different than collegiate level. Mm -hmm. There's three separate things, but the water gets a little muddy there. I would like to talk about the U.S. rowing policy just for a minute so that we can set a groundwork for the conversation we're going to have with her. Yeah. A lot of what we do is we've got our finger on the pulse of masters. But right now we're talking about a U.S. rowing policy and potentially Title IX, which is affecting a huge spectrum of rowers of all ages. And U.S. rowing's gender identity policy that came out last year At the youth level, so that's junior, high school, scholastic, U19, 17, U15, shall be allowed to participate in a rowing activity in accordance with their expressed gender identity, irrespective of the sex listed on the athlete's birth certificate or student records, and regardless of whether the athlete has undergone any medical treatment. Yeah, and I think some of the contention around this is the science of who gets to actually participate in what divisions. There's the concept of creating a third division and maybe even a fourth division for non-binary. I think there's two different things happening. In my mind, there's two different discussions. There's the idea that someone can self-identify as male or female with no documentation, just a self-expression or an identification and say, I I declare myself as male or female or non-binary. And then there's how that rubber meets the road, literally in a regatta setting or in a race setting in a competitive environment. Yeah, because the U.S. rowing policy for adult athletes says that athletes over the age of 18 
who are not considered a use or collegiate rower shall be allowed to participate in a rowing activity in accordance with such athletes' express gender identity, irrespective of the sex listed on the athlete's birth certificate. Mm -hmm. And regardless of whether the athlete has undergone any medical treatment subject to eligibility procedures. Yeah. So our job on this podcast is to get to know the people behind this. Yeah. Um, you and I have a lot of learning and potentially unlearning to do, as do most people when it comes to this issue. Gender identity is not a new thing in terms of human civilization, but it's a new thing in terms of what happens when you come into a very binary environment like male, female only athletics. We've seen changes in other ways culturally with gender neutral bathrooms you know, gender neutral clothing. We've sure. seen a lot of other sort of social constructs tackling this issue. Um, and this is not unique to rowing. You know, as we know, this is affecting um, the swim world. Um, yeah, I mean, sports across the board. Yeah. Right, right. Across the board, which have traditionally been male, female categories only. You know, I think part of this is learning and unlearning, you know, for you and I and for everybody in our sport. And part of this is providing a safe space for even some more controversial points of view to be heard. And mm -hmm. I think we're really lucky that we have this platform to invite people like Dr. Mary O'Connor. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think this could be a really important opening of a conversation that may not be happening one-to-one -one right now. Yeah. And I think for us as interviewers, you know, we're not journalists by trade. Yeah. We are yeah. masters rowers and masters coaches who yeah. have a podcast, but we have a great loyal listenership. And we, in these interviews, do a lot of prep and we do a lot of research, but there's always room for us to grow. And we hope, I think you'll agree with me, that we hope this is just one point in the conversation and that we can create more dialogue. And I think one of the things that's important for me in this interview is that we do a lot of listening because of that, because mm -hmm. we are providing a space for someone to express their opinions and what they know and what they want to share with the community. So this interview might be a little bit different than our usual podcast, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I want to impress upon folks that this is intended to be one in a series and we'd like to have really thought-provoking conversations with several people about the issue of gender identity policies in rowing. So let's see what Mary has to tell us. Yeah, let's do it. Hi, I'm Dr. Mary O'Connor, and you're listening to Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. My name is Mary O'Connor, and my pronouns are she, her. I learned to row at Yale University, and I've rowed for Yale. I rowed for the U.S. national team, the Olympic team. Uh, I've rowed for a couple cl different clubs over the years. Today, I am working as an entrepreneur in the medical healthcare delivery field, and I fell in love with rowing when I was a freshman at Yale, and I come from a time when there were no sports for girls in my high school. So my first opportunity to row was when I went to college. Thank you so much for being here with 
guests today. We're really looking forward to talking with you, Dr. Mary O'Connor, and talking with you about your rowing background and history and uh, your involvement with ICONS and a rowing petition that um, was begun last year. Should we dive right in, Tara? Heck yes, let's do it. So to help our listeners get to know you, we do a set of questions we call rapid fire Q&A. Are you ready? I am ready. Port or starboard? Port. Bow seat or stroke seat? Stroke. Head race or sprint race? Both. Unisuit or tank and trow? <laughs> I'm old enough. We didn't have a lot of unisuits then. We did on the national team, but in you know other competition, it was a, a shirt and trow. Favorite coxswain command you've received? Uh, you're winning. <laughs> <laughs> response just hearing that yeah that's a good one uh best place to row and why oh that's a tough one i mean i loved rowing in new haven on the housatonic and boston on the charles and uh, in philadelphia so really most of my rowing and training time were in one of those three locations and particularly philly and boston have such a rich rowing culture and history. And, you know, there's just so many rowers and clubs. And so I, I particularly enjoyed those locations. Are you a coffee or a tea drinker? And would you drink coffee before or after a row? I'm a tea drinker. And so I would drink tea before a race. All right. We ask those questions of every guest on the podcast. So it's really nice to see just across the board who we're always talking to. And it's a nice way to compare and contrast our guests. So we want to go back to the day that this all started and back in the 1960s, growing up in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. We've already mentioned that there weren't sports opportunities for girls at that time. So what kinds of activities were you involved in? Were there any sort of sporty-like events that you were involved in? Were you tapped into your competitive spirit? So I played tennis when I was in high school, but there was no team. There was no competition. I mean, there would be some summer tournaments. I didn't have a coach. I mean, it was just my best friend and I playing tennis with each other. I was a foreign exchange student my senior year of high school. And then when I came back, I had been accepted at Yale. And remember, when I first came back from being overseas, I saw this flyer, row at Yale. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And my aunt said, literally, I remember this so clearly, oh, you don't want to do that. That is so unladylike. And that was probably what really got me to look at it more seriously. And then when I arrived at Yale, the coach and the team, you know, had an eight out on the old campus, which is the where the freshman houses are. So I went up and they said, come on, come on out and try it. So that was really my introduction to rowing. And I was blessed to have some, you know, just first of all, I had incredible teammates my year and we were very successful, but we had leaders and mentors, namely Chris Ernst, uh, who was our captain my freshman year, and Ann Warner, who was a junior my freshman year, who had been on the Red Rose crew, the 75 uh, national team. And so, so we already had this example of if you work hard, train hard, you know, like you could excel at this sport. And that has never left me the, the fact that for any young person, but I think in particular for young women, 
to see that there's somebody who has achieved something makes it a lot easier for you to see yourself excelling as well and achieving that same level. And that yeah. sounds like a really quick buildup for the Yale program, which really had just been established just a couple years prior to your arriving, right? Correct. So, you know, when I, when I started rowing, uh, we did not have any facilities at the boathouse. So there was no locker room for the women. And the boathouse was 30 minutes from campus. So basically, everybody would meet up at the Payne Whitney gym. We'd load up on the buses. We'd go out to the boathouse. The men would go change in their locker room. We would have to be changed, right? We would go out and row. We'd come back. The women, we would go sit on the bus, cold and wet, damp, while the guys went and showered and got dressed, nice, mm. dry, clean clothes. And then we'd have to haul it back to the campus in order to get there before the last dining hall closed for dinner. So this, of course, was not, this was less than ideal, to say the least. And then people started getting sick on the women's team, upper respiratory illnesses, pneumonia, things like that. And so Chris Ernst and Ann Warner um, came up with this idea that we should go have a demonstration in front of the Yale Women's Athletic Director. So in the spring, 19 of us met at the basement, in the basement of the Payne Whitney Gym in the women's locker room. And we, we wrote Title IX on our bare chests and backs. And we put our Yale Women's Crew sweats on, and that was it. And then we marched up to her office, and there was a large reception room. So we all got into the reception room. The athletic director came out. Chris gave us the signal. We stripped. So 19 of us are standing there you know, naked with Title IX on our bare chests and backs, while Chris reads a statement that starts with, these are the bodies that Yale is exploiting. We had a photographer and a reporter from the Yale Daily News, which was a student newspaper. There was an article put in the Yale Daily News that was, the story was then picked up by the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune. And so there was, you know, a lot of publicity that was then received. Basically, the university was embarrassed into action, and mm -hmm. our protest has been heralded as the first stand for Title IX in college athletics. We had a boathouse addition by the following spring. So miraculously, all of the barriers as to why the university could not address the inadequate facilities, you know, from my perspective, just kind of magically disappeared. And that was really my first, um, I would say, more direct involvement in issues of women's rights and equity and disparities, which has been very important in my professional medical career as well. What was your big takeaway from that? And how did that affect your, your team going forward? I mean, obviously, there's a history there. There's a legacy there now. Uh, I, would, I would assume that at Yale, there's a really strong association with that legacy still still there is and um we're very tight uh it's it's been remarkable how how tight we have remained over all these years and i still consider these teammates some of my dearest and closest friends and uh we all enjoyed getting back together in december of this past year espn had us come back to new haven to include us in part of their segments on Title IX. You just answered about three different questions we were going to ask you. So that was wonderful. One 
thing that I'm curious about that maybe you already partially answered by talking about the women who are already there and their um, successes by the time you joined the team. Your first year, what sorts of goals did you have in mind and what sorts of goals did the team have overall for the program and where did you think that the program was going? Well, that's a great question, Rachel, and a little bit uh, long ago for me to focus on some specific goals, but very quickly in my own mind, I thought, okay, I could make the varsity. I could excel. If I, if I apply myself and work hard, I could be on a national team. I could be on an Olympic team. And so I already had role models for this in the form of Chris and Ann as did many of my teammates. You know, many of us from that, from that time were very successful at the elite level. Where are you right now in your role with the rowing community? I mean, are you rowing? Are you coaching? Are uh, you a fan? Are you a rowing parent? Are you a, rowing a, adjacent? Well, uh, my biggest role would be a rowing parent. So mm -hmm. my youngest is uh, still very active uh, with training and rowing. And then I became more involved last year on policy issues when I became aware that the U.S. Rowing Board of Directors was going to update the transgender policy that they had passed back, I want to say it was 2015 or 2016, which I was completely unaware that there was even this initial policy. So I became more engaged in this because it's really, from my perspective, an issue of fairness and saving women's sports. And I mean that in all seriousness, because if women don't have protected competition for females, I, I really think that we're going to see a lot of, of, uh, a lot of negative repercussions, decreased opportunities for females, decreased recognition of their efforts. And I, I just want to point out how critical it is to the professional future of an individual, their athletic success. We just contributed myself and four other uh, Olympians to an amicus brief for the Second Circuit Court for that's hearing the case of the Connecticut high school girls who lost state championships to um, trans girls. And why does that matter? People say, well, winning isn't everything. That's true. Winning is not everything, but winning still matters. Okay. I entered orthopedic surgery um, now decades ago. I was accepted at one of the most prestigious training programs in the country at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There were very, very few women in orthopedics. There are still way too few women in orthopedics, but back then it was even worse. And the fact that I was an Olympic athlete, to me, made all the difference with them accepting me. Like mm -hmm. I had accomplished something that, that, the, that the men could relate to. They could understand. It made it easier for me to be um, allowed to join the club, so to speak. Mm -hmm. and, and, you, and you have to see the success in athletics is so easily viewed as the ability of someone to apply themselves, to be disciplined, to have determination, to understand how to win and lose. And after you lose, to pick yourself back up and work harder. 
Okay. I have selected in my professional career, I don't know, hundreds of, of people for positions, residency slots, fellowship slots, faculty positions. And one of the things that I look for is has this individual demonstrated the ability to excel? Excel in something. It doesn't have to be medically mm-hmm. related, doesn't even have to be sports. It could be cooking, you know, but sports is such a common area. And so the ability to excel means that you are able to win, that you have titles. Mm-hmm. And that translates into someone viewing you as someone who can then excel at what they want to hire you or promote you for. So this is really, really important for people to understand. So when you take away the opportunity for girls and young women to actually win, to have medals, you will impact their professional careers. Home buyers are flocking to Maine for mountain, lake, and ocean access, friendly neighbors, and above all, relaxation like you'll find nowhere else. If the vacation land lifestyle is one you'd like to explore, reach out to the folks at Breakwater Realty Group, brokered by EXP Realty. With agents up and down the coast and inland to the mountains, they'll provide the friendly expertise needed to get you into your next home in Maine or New Hampshire. Learn more or contact the team at breakwaterrealtygroup.com. Steady Safe Podcast is made possible with listener support. Become a patron today for early access to episodes, discounts on SSN swag, and invitations to patron-only events. Find out more at steadystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. In two, we're back with Dr. Mary O'Connor. That's one, two. I'd like to take a step back because we haven't actually introduced the organization that you're working with today. Can you tell us a bit about the Independent Council on Women's Sports and how that came to be and what role you're playing there? Absolutely. So ICONS, which is the Independent Council on Women's Sports, um, was co-founded by two amazing women, Kim Jones and Marshy Smith. And the goal of ICONS is to elevate and empower female athletes um, to protect safety, fairness, and opportunity for girls and women. and. I don't actually remember how I actually first connected with them, but then we created an Icons Rowing chapter, and on the executive committee of that um, are well-known rowing individuals like Carol Brown and Jan Palchikoff, Val McLean, Pat Spratlin-Eatum, Ann Simpson. We got together because of our concern with the um, policy of U.S. rowing, and then um, their work to update their policy, that this was essentially blatant discrimination against female rowers. Did you all know each other already in that executive committee? Do you all share some sort of yes. experience? Do you have a shared experience? So um, Val and Pat, Carol and Jan and I were all on um, teams in 79 and in 80. Mm-hmm. And we also knew from some other connections, and she's just a wonderful uh, contributor as well. Great. I just wondered if there was a thread that connected. Maybe this is a group of people who represent that Title IX era, would you say? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, Ann Simpson was one of the first female pilots, airline pilots. She broke many barriers as well. And so, yes, all of us were products of Title IX because Title IX gave us opportunity that we didn't have before. And I know from watching a video on the ICON's uh, YouTube channel with you and a very established lawyer, where they talk about how the Biden administration is now proposing these changes to Title IX and how that's trickling down. And it, it seems to me like your focus, your meaning ICON's focus, is really this collegiate elite level and collegiate especially, where federal funding is actually funneling down um, into those programs and Title IX really comes to a head. A couple comments first. Title oh, sure, IX sure. Go. is a law passed by Congress that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. Okay. Biden administration has proposed modifying that language to say sex and gender. And therein lies the problem. Okay. And I think it's, it's first of all, it's really important for me to say that I and all of my ICON's rowing colleagues want everyone to enjoy rowing and to be able to row and to participate in our great sport. The issue is fairness and competition and to some degree privacy, but let's focus on fairness and competition. If we take away fairness and competition by allowing males to compete as girls and women, then we will we we compromise the integrity of women's sports and we say that fairness and competition matters for boys and men but it doesn't matter for girls and women it relegates girls and women to second class citizens this has a, an impact on the athletes because they know it's not fair everybody knows it's not fair and the sports bodies that are supposed to create policies to ensure fairness are ignoring their scenario, their discrimination, right? It's like the groups that are supposed to protect you not only know that you're being treated unfairly, they are purposefully ignoring the fact that you're being treated unfairly. But that's not the case for boys or men where fairness is protected for them. And if you look at the updated policy from U.S. rowing, the only section where they specifically require an athlete to be female to compete in a certain category are the mixed events. And honestly, I, I was just so struck by this um, because basically what it says is in a mixed event, a boat has to be half men and half females. Now, why did they do that? They did that because if the boat was half men and half trans athletes, meaning males who identify as women, then that boat would have an advantage over a boat of 50% males and 50% females. And who would that hurt? That would hurt the males in the mixed boat that's 50% males and females. So they preserve fairness for males and they have ignored fairness for females. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. One thing that Tara and I talk a lot about is pipeline. Oftentimes that conversation is about a coaching pipeline, but there's also the rowing pipeline starting at the scholastic level and looking at world rowing policy, U.S. rowing policy, and now even at the individual club policy levels. 
there's a lot happening there and a lot of differentiation made between scholastic collegiate elite and Olympic. And I think Tara and I are curious about your personal opinion about allowing transgender and non-binary rowers, let's say at the scholastic level. We understand that starting there is a pipeline to collegiate, which is a pipeline to, you know, the national team. Could you talk to us a bit about that? Well, it's the same issue of fairness. So if uh, collegiate policies will permit a male who identifies as a woman to compete against females, that is unfair to the females. There are absolutely clear sex differences. The sex differences begin in the womb, in utero. The sex differences dramatically increase at, with puberty where boys are flooded with testosterone. But it's important for us to understand that those sex differences happen from conception, okay? And so even before puberty, boys have physiologic advantage over girls. However, those advantages are greatly magnified after puberty. Secondly, all of the sex advantages are not driven just by testosterone. Thirdly, testosterone can be suppressed, but it will not completely erase the male physiologic advantage. So therein lies the fundamental problem, because that is the science. That is the truth. That is the reality. So a male who identifies as a woman who suppresses testosterone does not become a female biologically. The playing field is not level. So the path forward, because again, we want everyone to be able to enjoy rowing and compete in rowing, is to modify our categories to have female-only category and an open category. And in that open category, anyone can compete. What's your biggest challenge so far in achieving what you're trying to achieve? First of all, we're making substantial progress. And, um, you know, we, we also at ICONS are engaged at the international level with multiple sports. And I have been particularly um, engaged with some of the folks in the UK for British rowing. As you know, just uh, last week, World Athletics came out with a new policy, which, which says the female category is protected. If you went through puberty as a male, you cannot compete as a woman. That was huge because that is based on the science. And Sebco came out and said, yes, we understand that inclusion matters, but fairness is the most important principle that we have to uphold. And that's my belief, and that is the belief of icons. If there's no fairness in competition, there's no integrity in the sport. And what's the point? I mean, nobody, does anybody, and I, and I don't like, and I don't, uh, I want to be careful and make sure that the listeners hear, hear my disclaimer. I don't consider trans women who are competing against females who are following the current rules to be cheaters. They're following the rules. They've been allowed to come into this space. Okay. However, what's happening is unfair. And nobody, no spectator, 
Nobody wants to see a competition that is unfair. It goes against the principle of what sports is. We compete against each other so we can demonstrate our ability to excel to our personal best. And the fairness in the competition that says, yes, I am the victor matters. We've made progress. You know, world rowing in the last few weeks modified their transgender policy to tighten the testosterone suppression level requirement. And in brief, what it had been was five nanomoles per liter for one year of continuous testosterone suppression. And they've tightened that now to 2.5 nanomoles per liter continuous suppression over 24 months. But what is important for the listeners to know is that level, even 2.5, is higher than the normal female, okay? Normal females will be 1.6 or so, 1.8. So that is still higher than the normal female. And secondly, we know that that does not erase the male advantage, doesn't level the playing field. So in my opinion, what they did was they kicked the can down the road because this updated policy will probably ensure that there is not a male who identifies as a woman who's suppressing testosterone from competing at the Olympics in Paris. They changed the level of suppression and they changed the length that an athlete needs to be suppressed. They've kicked the can down the road. This is just my opinion. I don't know if they were thinking this way or not, but it doesn't address the core issue of fairness for females. Now, typically what happens is the national governing bodies in all the various countries here in the U.S., that's U.S. rowing, then follow the world rowing policies for elite athletes. So I know that last year, I believe last summer, ICONS held its first conference and uh, I was able to watch a, a video about that online on YouTube. If anyone wants to check it out, we'll have a link to it on our website when this episode comes out. Um, and and it looked really well attended and there were great interviews with some young, uh, they seem to be collegiate athletes. And I'm curious, you know, Tara and I are kind of spectators, really. We are not collegiate athletes. We've been out of college for many, many years. We really have our hands on the master's scene. Um, but I think most folks will have heard about swimmer Leah Thompson. Folks will have heard about track runner Caster Semenya. These are big names that have really brought the spotlight to this issue. I'm curious, from your perspective and folks that you know, how prevalent are trans and non-binary athletes at the collegiate and elite levels? And what sorts of pressure are they putting on fairness for women? Um. We don't have data. I don't have data. I'm not aware of data um, that would provide the number of trans women, meaning a male who identifies as a woman who's competing in the women's category. So it's unclear to me how common that is. I do believe that there are in the master's category and in ERG competitions, males who are competing in the women's category. And the new U.S. rowing policy, the updated policy, does not require any testosterone suppression whatsoever except for elite-level athletes, okay? So 
you're a master's woman's rower and you're out there training and there's a male who identifies as a woman who's now competing against you. And, and likely that will happen. Um, and that's not fair. That's just the bottom line. It's not fair. Are you sensing from the rowing community that this is becoming more prevalent as trans and transgender issues are just uh, there? Uh, it's very much more in the public eye. It's much more in culture now. It's much more talked about. It's not such a hidden thing that more people are coming out publicly. And our youth rowers, I'm sorry to cut you off, and our youth rowers really, and youth in general, are talking about gender and sex okay. in a completely new Absolutely. way. Absolutely. They're genderless at this point. Yeah. So, um, let me, oh, there, that's, there's lots and lots of issues here. Okay. And um, there has been much more public awareness regarding medical treatments for gender dysmorphia, gender dysmorphism, right? Um, and a lot more concern in the medical community about whether those treatments are medically appropriate. For example, in countries that have had um, historic gender affirming care centers, they are now um, restricting uh, centers where children can go to be evaluated in treatment to a much tighter number. And I think that makes sense personally as a physician. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that there are children who need appropriate care, okay? There's also, it also seems to me that from what I've read of, of some treatment that children are receiving, that they're not necessarily receiving the right mental health counseling and support before they're being given medical treatment, like hormones and puberty blockers and even surgery. And some of these treatments will cause irreversible changes to the body of that individual. So uh, this is an area where I think from the medical, I'm talking now from, as a medical professional, from the medical perspective, people need to really take a hard look at what is the right approach? What are the right protocols? Okay. It's very concerning that there's this huge shift in the demographics of children that are seeking gender affirming care. Because historically, the individuals that sought that were males who wanted to become women, who identified as women. Now that's completely reversed. And the numbers are much greater for girls who identify for females who identify as males seeking to trans, I'm sorry, <laughs> females who identify as men seeking to transition to be men. But wouldn't you attribute something like that to just access to care? Men have had everything they needed for all of these years and now. Um, so of course they could transition because they were already in a photo privilege, right? No, because no, for the following reason. Although I fundamentally agree with the point that there's huge disparities for women in healthcare. That's Absolutely. why I, I wrote a book uh, published last year called Taking Care of You, The Empowered Woman's Guide to Better Health, um, because there's huge health inequities for women and individuals of color. Okay. Again, I've been in this 
health equity, health disparity space stemming from my experience as a, a first year student at Yale experiencing this is what discrimination looks like and feels mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. um, okay. There was never a lot of access for anyone to have gender affirming care, whether you were a man or a woman in the past. Only recently have these uh, clinics, care centers been stood up at universities and, and not even just at universities. I mean, you know, freestanding gender affirming clinics. So no one had, historically, no one had great access. Although, of course, anyone who has more money, privileged social status, access in healthcare is always easier, which traditionally has been males. We saw your, uh, your meaning icons, petitions first. The first I, I was introduced to it, and I think Rachel as well, was at the uh, head of the Charles Regatta. We noticed some flyers uh, that were handed out about a petition that you are asking people to sign, to read and sign if they so feel inclined. I saw it again at the head of the Lake Regatta here in Seattle. And so it sounds like you've got some uh, ambassadors out who are going to events and, and trying to get the word out. Tara, it's, uh, it's been really well received. And we have a, a lot of people that have uh, joined the cause, so to speak. And again, we are advocating that there should be and needs to be a place for every single individual in rowing. But in competition, you have to, you have to create categories for competition to promote fairness. That is why we don't let open weights compete as lightweights. That is why we don't let somebody who's 50 compete in the 70-year-old age bracket. Where does self-identification end? What stops me from saying, hey, I'm actually a lightweight. And, I, and so I self-identify as a lightweight. It doesn't matter that I'm not a lightweight, right? I should be able to compete in the lightweight category. Hmm. That is essentially the same scenario as what is happening when males, again, with or without testosterone suppression, are allowed to compete in the women's category. For a firsthand account of the trans experience in scholastic and collegiate rowing, take a listen to our 2020 conversation with Kaylian Mullen and Leah Miranda. Get the episode link in the show notes on our website. Follow Steady State Network on Facebook and Instagram at Steady State Network. And join our email list at SteadyStateNetwork.com. In two, we're back with Dr. Mary O'Connor. That's one, two. We've talked a, a bit, and I think you've touched on what is being proposed, which is, you know, maintaining female categories, men's categories. But could you talk about where you see trans and non-binary athletes participating? So let me clarify what, what our uh, position is at ICONS is that currently the, the current next step is female-only category and an open category, so two categories. That gives everyone the opportunity to compete. In that open category would be males, could be a male who identifies as a woman who's suppressing testosterone or not, 
could be a non-binary individual. It could be anybody. It could be a female that says, I want to compete in the open category. So the open category allows everyone the opportunity to compete. And then there's a category that is for females only, because if we don't do that, then we erase, then we, then we're, we're not protecting fairness in competition for females. Now, is it possible that with time, there could be other evolutions of this so that there's a trans woman's category and there's a trans men category? Because quite honestly, they're the individuals that have been completely left out of this conversation. Nobody seems to even give them an afterthought, which to me is another form of discrimination and bias against women, right? Because here's a female who now identifies as a man who is transitioning by taking testosterone. That individual is barred from competition because that is doping by national governing body rules and international governing body rules. So what happens for that individual? How do they compete? And that individual, that female who identifies as a man who's taking testosterone, right? A trans man, so to speak, is not going to be a competitive threat to a male, right? Because that female will never gain the advantages that a male has who went through puberty as a male. So that to me, again, protected female category, open category, gives everyone the opportunity to compete. And then perhaps if things evolve in the future, there could be specific categories for trans women and categories for trans men. And I don't know, like, at what point do you say we have enough categories, right? Then you're going to say, well, no, we still need a fifth category that's non-binary. So well, that you know. If you look at the adaptive sphere, I work in the adaptive sphere and have for many years. I look at adaptive swimming. I mean, the fairness, the adaptive, just adaptive swimming alone is like 20 different categories, just to be fair. But I get your point that if you're saying that ICONS is proposing this particular initiative now, it's not to say that that's what's set in stone forever yeah. or where the sport, because the sport is an organic sport. It changes just like any other sport changes. It's not that this can't evolve, but for right now, okay, the most important thing right now is to, is to protect fairness and competition for females. Otherwise, the messages that we're sending to girls and women, to females, and not just to them, but to the boys and men, okay, is that women and girls, females are not worthy of fair competition. You, you, we have to understand that the impact of this, okay? We're going to protect fairness and competition for boys and men, traditional male, males, right? But we're not going to care about that for females. Females are not equal, okay? Men and women, we are equal. We are different biologically, but we are equal. Let's fast forward this long but let's say Icons is a, it has experienced success in their initiative. How will you know you've succeeded? Tara, this is my personal opinion. I believe that 
we will have succeeded when we have women's categories in competition for sports protected for females. And when we have found appropriate opportunities for everyone else that at the same time, and this is important, do not take away, do not disproportionately disadvantage women. Here, here, I, I want This is a subtle point, but an important one. For example, some people have said, well, why don't you just have three categories right now? Female, male, and trans women, right? Meaning a male who identifies as a woman who wants to compete as a woman. And then the female category is protected, right? But you have another category for males who identify as women. So one of the challenges with that is there would then theoretically be unequal opportunity for females to compete because essentially you're creating two categories for males and there's only one category for females. And I have lived through a time when I started rowing when we did not have the same number of events. We didn't have, we didn't, we, we did not have the same opportunity to compete. And now we do. There are equal number of events, women's events and males' events in regattas and races today. So if we create this third category, we're essentially creating a third category that is for males. And that's the problem with that approach. Now, if you know, it's not that this can't evolve, but I am sensitive to having lived through unequal opportunity that we not lose that critical ground that we've gained. So, yeah. And I, I think that's a big point for Rachel and I is that our show is about, like we said at the beginning, the people behind this. You know, there's a lot of science, there's a lot of theory, there's a lot of policy, there's a lot of that. But Mary O'Connor, Dr. Mary O'Connor, you know, you just even getting that a little bit vulnerable and just saying that you have personally been affected by both sides of, of this kind of an issue. Um, that's really why we wanted to have you on the show is, yeah. is to well, be able to, you know, feel the, the humanity behind what ICONS is doing. So in 1979, when I stroked the U.S. Uh, Women's Eight at the World Championships, we won a bronze medal. That was a huge achievement. Okay. The Russians and the East Germans, who came in first and second, those women were all doping on testosterone. Okay. I have personally experienced, as have my icons rowing women executive committee colleagues, we have all competed in a time when doping of women in Eastern Bloc countries was routine. The competition was not fair. Everyone knew it. Okay. We were denied opportunity to show how good we were because the other countries were cheating because those women were taking testosterone, okay? They had higher levels of testosterone than we did, okay? It is the same exact scenario if a male is now suppressing testosterone, okay, and competing as a woman, they still have testosterone advantage. I picture you standing on the podium with your bronze medal, which is in and of itself an incredible accomplishment. 
And what was that like to stand there with them on the gold medal and, and the silver medal knowing like what was your what was the feeling like? Probably my um, one of the moments that stands out for me was when Tommy Keller, who's now passed, but he was the president of what was then called FISA, which is now World Rowing. And so he was putting the medals around our necks. And he, when he put the medal around my neck, he said, congratulations, are you satisfied? And I said, no. You wanted the gold. Yeah, yeah. of course. Now, I was intellectually, I knew that we had done an amazing job. I mean, we beat the Romanians and I honestly have never in my life seen a boat row as perfectly as those women. I mean, I realized that I couldn't, I should stop. I stopped watching them train on the, you know, we were all over in bled Yugoslavia, actually. And when I watched them row, I was like, oh my God, they are magnificent. You know, <laughs> I mean, their technique, they were just so like amazingly beautiful rowers. And then I realized like, Mary, can't do that to yourself. Like you got to beat these women. You can't be like idolizing. You can appreciate that they row well, right? And the Russians rode terribly, but it didn't matter. They were huge. Their technique was awful. The East Germans were like in between, reasonably good technically, but also really big. You know, we set a world record in the heat in 1979. Our boat, R8, was the fastest. It was a world record. We got to the dock and basically the Russian coach was came out to the dock and stood next to each one of us while someone else was filming this. And I was just laughing like, oh, yeah, okay. You're the reference for how tiny we are relative to your women. And you're wondering why we were just faster than, than your boat. But, you know, anyway, right. just these are, uh, you know, these are things that stay with you when you've experienced unfair unfair situations and essentially lived with discriminatory policies, then you, you know, at least for me, you know, I've wanted to champion fairness and equity uh, because those things matter. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. I know that this can be, uh, like Tara likes to say, spicy. It's a spicy issue. There are lots of opinions and we really ourselves have lots of questions that we would like to have answered. And you gave us lots of good things to think about today. And certainly, you know, we are not physicians. And so those sorts of things that you can speak to, we really appreciate you talking with us about today. Tara and I, you know, we've kind of got thoughts rolling around in our heads about this issue as well. So um, we're looking to uh, be talking with a few more people about it and, and bringing it to our audience to consider as well. I thank you both. I've really enjoyed this. I'm thank you. I'm going to close with one other comment. So a friend of mine whose daughter is a elite level athlete asked her um, what she thought about including trans athletes in women's events. And, you know, she's a lot younger and she's a elite level competitive athlete right now. And her response was, yeah, they should be included. And then her mother said, well, what if that trans athlete took your spot on the national team or the Olympic team. And the response is, well, that wouldn't be okay. That's not fair. Like, oh, so, so like we, we need a path forward so that we can have inclusion of all in our great sport, but we also have to prioritize fairness. 
which again means the female category has to be protected for females. Okay, ladies, you have a thank wonderful Thank you. Track. All right. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye. We know of like one person here and one person there. And like, I, I understand where she's coming from in terms of fairness, but it's not overwhel- I mean, maybe this is, well. Maybe this is, you don't, maybe it'll change in time. Well, here's the thing. If Biden, if that policy change happens where it says sex or gender, then if you're a dude, a male born dude, a assigned male at birth dude, who goes to a university and there's no men's swim team. Mm -hmm. By law, they have to, he says, well, then I'm a girl. Mm -hmm. I'm female. Mm -hmm. By law, they have to allow him to be on their swim team or to Mm -hmm. try out for their swim team. And I think what what I was picking up on, and I tend to be more of an empath in this way, what I was picking up on was, girl, like they, that era, they feel a lot on their shoulders about Title IX and about mm-hmm. having shouldered the burden of both sides of it. So you can understand why she's almost acting out of a out of a fear response. Like she's a they're like they're afraid of the thing happening. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of the slide, like the gates will open and all these trans women will go to Yale and try to join the Yale team. Yeah. I mean, I just, I agree with you. It's a very small issue in actuality. Yeah. But I think what she's talking about is she comes from this place. I'm really glad she got vulnerable with us at the end there because I saw it. I heard it in her voice. There's more to this that she has part when she said, well, I was personally affected by it. I was like, how? Tell me. Like, <laughs> that's what I want to know because otherwise you're just, reading statements you know yeah i'm glad we talked to her i'm glad we i'm glad we got to know her a little bit to see photos of dr o'connor and get links to the people clubs and events mentioned in this episode check out the show notes on our website hey rachel i think some listeners might not know that steady state is more than a podcast so much more We get together live on Instagram for coffee chat every Friday morning at 8 a.m. West, 11 East. We talk about rowing, racing, and technique, and deep dive into things like inclusion and leadership. And join us live and in person at U.S. Rowing Masters Nationals July 20 to 23 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Get more info when you subscribe to our e-newsletter. This episode was written, produced, Hosted and edited by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Tara provides additional audio engineering and is our sponsor coordinator. Rachel manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience, and we run successful rowing-related enterprises. Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, which champions inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. And Rachel is the founder of RowSource, designing unique rowing gear for individuals, clubs, and events. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Steady State Network, Seize the Oar, and RowSource. Coming up on the next episode, 
We continue to explore gender inclusion policies at all levels of rowing in the United States. We'll talk to Ann Strayer, head varsity women's coach at Oakland United Rowers, former U.S. national team rower, and now co-author of a newly penned letter signed by coaches and leaders across the country, making the case that inclusion of marginalized minorities boosts self-worth. That's all for today. In two, way enough. That's one, two. This, this is gonna. This is an awkward transition, but you were in a dream. Um, I don't remember what we were dreaming, but when I woke up, I was like. That's the first time Tara showed up in the dream I had. Like, I've known you now for a few years and you like popped up in a dream. Finally, you visited me. Wow. Was it a fun dream? I think it was. You know what? Honestly, I think we're talking about the podcast and scheduling. It was not terribly exciting. Maybe next time we'll dream about us, like, you know, rowing together or something. <laughs> that would be way better. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by... <laughs> <laughs> podcast. Study State Podcast is sponsored in part by Make world class rowing products since 1976. Find out more at concept2.com. Oh, and Limbro Studios. Live online and in-person indoor rowing classes, training camps, and coaching for everybody. Visit live2rowstudios.com. I don't think that's going to fly. Here's my picture for us is that we purchase like matching beach chairs and we sit at regattas with like our headphones on. We just sit and watch regattas and we just like, hey, what's up? Like, yeah, you know, but they're like, but they're like really noticeable beach chairs. Like maybe they're like, oh, yeah, we should get, we should get those tall director's chairs and put Steady State logo on the back. All right. All right, my friend, I think we did well with that interview. I'm I'm pretty proud of us. I think we listened really well. I think that was a hard one. And we did I think we did well. High fives. <laughs>